All right. Hey, we're going to get going. Uh, welcome to the Apologetic Seminar. Um, like I said, I'd, I want to I really create more of like a grassroots feel to this. Um, I feel like at night I do a lot of like prepared, you know, what I've thought about. Um, so I'd love to be able to have you guys direct where you want to go or what questions you have. And I'll ask them uh, and I'll answer them in real time. And uh, one other thing is just to clarify, the field of apologetics really covers um, evidence for God. Uh, so the reason, the reason that we believe in God, the First Peter 3 makes it really clear that as Christians, we are to have a, um, um, an apologia or an apologetics or a defense for the belief that we have. We should have a reasonable defense for the belief that we have. Roman, or the book of Deuteronomy says that we are to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, when I was your age, I really believed that the church was good for people. It just wasn't true. I thought that the Bible was uh, interesting and helpful. I just didn't think that it was accurate, trustworthy, reliable, or true. And those were, that was kind of my issue. And what I found, and God bless his heart, is as I would go to youth group, my youth pastor would sit there and I would ask him tough questions. You know, like, do we have any proof that God exists? Uh, is everything supposed to be taken on blind faith? Well, all these kind of hard, difficult questions and my youth pastor just wasn't equipped. And so he was kind of like, hey, let's play chubby bunny and throw dodgeballs at each other and forget that you asked. And then I would go to school, and my bio professor would say, this is definitely where we came from. This is absolutely how we came to be. And I didn't have the discernment or the know-how to, dis to dis distinguish between those two things. In my world, like raising kids, if one of the kids wants you to look at the video evidence and the other kid doesn't want you to look at the video evidence of an event that happened, which one's telling the truth? Whoever, whoever wants to, to roll tape and show receipts is probably telling the truth. The other one's like, I don't know if we need that, right? And that's how it felt. It felt like the church kept going. Um, this is probably the most hurtful statement I heard growing up. God wants you to believe based on blind faith or else it wouldn't be real faith. Remarkably false. I don't know why I believe that. The Bible doesn't say it. Uh, the Bible says the opposite. The book of Romans chapter 1, verse 19 to 21 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities and his divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made so that man is without excuse. This is a Pauline way of saying God believes that he's written his fingerprints all over creation, that there aren't really such thing as atheists, that people have denied God, but that he's evident everywhere that we go. So, the Bible doesn't say take it on blind faith. It says, for sure, at one point, you have to surrender your life to something. But the Bible asks you to run a ramp of reason before you take that leap of faith. I just thought it was all about, we all got to choose something, and you kind of blindly like throw a dart at a board and find out what you believe. Not the case whatsoever. So I started reading Christian apologists and Christian authors and Christian thinkers. Uh, C.S. Lewis, D.L. Moody, Moreland, um, William Lane Craig, uh, Norman Geisler, um, R.C. Sproul, and I just went, how come no one's ever told me this before? There's a whole field of Christian evidence. There's, you can get your master's in Christian apologetics, like from Biola, and, and I didn't know anything about this whole field of study, and it really changed everything for me. I kind of went from going, I don't think God is real, to when I started reading then, the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins. When I started reading their stuff, I went, Wait a minute, with a little bit of training, you see the fallacies in this, you see where this is wrong, you see where they make leaps in logic, and you see where this is actually uh, coherently false. And that's what it took for me to really trust and believe in God. And apologetics is, is important, not just because the Bible says to do it, but also because it's an evangelistic tool. Okay? A lot of us as Christians have settled for, if someone asks, why do you believe in God? You might say, because uh, it worked for me. Which is great, except when the Muslim next door to you says that they became a Muslim and it changed their marriage and it worked for them. You really don't have anything to stand on then. It turns out you've just used utility as the reason you believe something and that can't be true, right? Your buddy down the street started smoking weed and his headaches went away. So weed worked for him. So he might go, great, I'm glad Christianity worked for you. The guy next door, Islam worked for him and this guy started smoking weed. And everyone's equal. It's not, that's not coherent. It's not cogent. It makes no sense. We have to have a reason for the hope that we have. And that reason is not blind faith. It is bound in logic, in evidence. So 
that is kind of my push for why this field is so important. And now I want to kind of open it up to questions that you might have. So uh, as you do, the only thing that I'll say is there's a distinction between Christian apologetics and between Christian theology and doctrine, okay? So you might go, well, what do you believe about predestination and free will? Is, there, is that question important? It's not of main importance in the Christian theology. It is of secondary importance, and it's not an apologetics question. So afterwards, if you want to come up and nerd out and go, what do you believe about predestination? I'll tell you my thoughts, okay? But let me just spoil it for you right now. I don't know. I don't know. I, just, I believe in Christian theology. If you've got brilliant men of God who have studied the text their whole life, who interpret something to mean over here, and other God-ordained brilliant men of theology over here that are both saved and they disagree on something, I think any of us rational people should kind of go, I don't know. Probably, well, I've got an opinion, but it's open-handed, right? My close-handed opinions my close-handed convictions of, of the gospel are we are saved by grace through faith in Christ revealed through scripture alone for God's glory alone. That's my close-handed beliefs. Can't change it. Can't manipulate them. That's stuck. My open-handed beliefs, predestination and free will. Is there going to be a tribulation? Is there going to be a millennium where Jesus comes back and reigns over the world? I don't know. And frankly, I don't really care. Okay? But I'll still discuss it with you because some of you are nerds like me and you like doing that. So... That'll be afterwards. You might hear me say, though, in the middle of it, oh, that's a theology question, not an apologetics question, and then just come afterwards. I'll, I'll be staying afterwards. We're going to go till 5. Um, you guys can feel free to dip out at that point, and then I'm going to be up there if you want to ask more questions. So, yes, first question. Yeah, Frank Turek. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, so he uses an analogy called surge, and it talks about, the, the question is, is um, the genesis of the universe. So, this is really important to know. This comes into an argument called the cosmological argument, and the cosmological argument, if you want to write it down, goes like this, okay? When we say argument, we mean it is a modus ponens argument, which means it's, it's the most tactile uh, way of doing an argument line. Here's an example of modus ponens. Um, all men are mortals, Socrates is, is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, right? It's airtight logic. You can't get around it. So when we do Christian apologetics, when I do a debate, if I'm at a local college, if I'm somewhere else, if I'm at a conference and I'm debating a non-believer, I want to start with making sure that we argue about the least amount of things possible. Minimalist facts. So I start with a modus ponens argument where he's not going to attack my way of discussing. He's not going to attack my, uh, my line of logic. So I'm going to tell him this. I'm going to tell him the cosmological argument goes like this. It's got two premises and then a conclusion that follows rightly from the premises. The first premise is this. Anything that begins to exist has a cause of its existence. Okay? That's premise number one. Anything that, that begins to exist has a cause of its existence. Okay, this is originally developed by a Muslim hundreds of years ago called Kalam. And he said, if anything that begins to exist has a cause. Number two, the universe began to exist. That's premise number two. So what, what follows rightly from the first and second premise? Right. If everything that begins to exist has a cause, and the universe has a, uh, has a beginning. Sorry, if the universe has a beginning. That's what I should have said. The universe has a beginning, and the universe has a cause. Why is the word cause important? Good. You need agency. Cause denotes agency. Agency means a mind, okay? It, someone has to do it. Someone has to have intent to do something. That's where we get the word cause. The, the, the other thing that can be other than cause is chance or accident. And we don't see any proof of anything in the universe that comes about by its own creation. That's self-creating, okay? The universe can't be self-creating because it would have to have been there ahead of time in order to create itself, so it's, it's a self-refuting principle. So that it's a very simple line of logic. Everything that begins to exist has a purpose. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has purpose. The universe has a uh, cause for its existence. And this is the Kalam cosmological argument. So now I will present that as a Christian, and I will say, here's evidence for the existence of God. We know, based on uh, 1850, the discovery of the second law of thermodynamics, which is what? Second law of thermodynamics states what? 
Good, that's first. What's the second one? Uh, no, you, so, okay, so, uh, that's, okay, here we go. Second law of thermodynamics states that all energies inside of a system move towards chaos over time, okay? Th- things break down, okay? It's, 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 the, it's essentially the idea of entropy, okay? So in our universe, there is heat, right? As the years go on, are we getting more or less heat in our universe? Less, yeah, it's dispersing, it's becoming less, right? The more someone exists in in their cells, do they break down or do they get stronger? They break down. Everything inside of a contained system breaks down over time and moves towards chaos, okay? So we discovered that in 1850. Then we have uh, Einstein in 1912 who developed the theory of relativity, which allowed us for the first time to speak meaningfully about past time events. That was important. Then we had a red light shift in 1929. We had the Hubble Space Telescope that was able to see way beyond our galaxy. And in it, these people discovered, this guy, this French guy named Lamatre. he looked and he saw as universes moved, the light around them was shifting. He called it the red light shift. This is a whole bunch of nerdy junk. But essentially... From these scientific discoveries, they have proven, which was finalized with the board vlenkin guth theorem in 2006, which is that all universes which are on average expanding had to have a point by which they were a singularity. So this is what, this is what Alexander Vlenkin postulated, which basically says, our universe, if you didn't know this, is currently expanding okay, at a rate of 68 kilometers per second per megaparsecond. So our universe isn't just getting bigger, it's getting faster on the reaches of where it's getting bigger, okay? Universe, space is weird, okay? Space is like, it's like super bizarre, okay? So if our universe is going like this, if you stopped and you pushed rewind, what would happen? And at that point, they call it the singularity, where all space, time, and energy, which is what we call a continuum, what does the word continuum mean? It means they need each other, okay? Space, time, and matter are on a continuum, okay? Can you have space without matter? No, can you have time without space? No, if you have matter but no, but no time, when would you put it? If you had matter without space, where would you put it? They, you have to have all three. And at that point, most scientists believe about 14 billion years ago, there was an explosion of energy where the space-time continuum began. So if the space-time continuum began 14 billion years ago, what was there before space-time and matter? Nothing. Nothing meaningful. Nothing that we would understand. Nothing that we'd be able to comprise. Nothing inside of our universe. Nothing in our universe was there. Could something outside of our universe have been there? Sure. Right? That, but that being would have to be uncreated, timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. How do we know that? Because the continuum began what? Space, time, and material. So if there was anything outside of our universe, we would be looking for, first of all, an agent because it caused our universe to be, and that agent would have to be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. If you read the book of Psalms, the way that Jesus, the way that God is denoted in Scripture is exactly like that. God is spaceless. God is timeless. God is immaterial. He doesn't have a body like you and I have, except for when he chose in the second person of the Trinity to become flesh. So the answer to your question, I think, is that popular science points that there was a moment at which everything began approximately around 14 billion years ago, and from that point, all space, time, and matter started. This is actually really ironic because when the Big Bang Theory first came out, Scientists were mocking it, naturalists were mocking it, because they knew if it was proven correct, it would mean that the book of Genesis is accurate. The book of Genesis makes a startling claim in the history of science. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, we had a steady state model of the universe for a while, where the universe has just always been there. The red light shift changed it. We see that the universe is expanding apart. Then they were like, well, maybe it's a cosmic crunch model. Boom, the universe goes like this. Crunch, open, crunch, open. The problem with that is, then a guy discovered what's called cosmic microwave background radiation in the 1970s. And it shows that there's only been one expansion of the universe. There's still heat left over from that. That's a long answer to a short question. 
I would postulate, and I'm okay with people who disagree, that the, univ- that the Big Bang model of the universe it not just aligns with modern science, it also aligns with the scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I would say that this is what's freaking scientists out right now, who originally were the ones who rejected the Big Bang, not Christians. Christians accepted it. Scientists rejected it. And now we're kind of working in this in a present model where we don't have any other model of the universe that doesn't have a definite beginning because of the board blank and Guth theorem. The only other model is the multiverse model, which essentially says, throw away all the evidence we have of here and don't do science within our contained system. What if there was a whole other system which was much simpler and much easier to understand and that's the way that our universe began, began. There's no evidence for it. There's no proof for it. And for there to be a multiverse, the odds are like one in a hundred billion, trillion, 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 trillion to one that there could even be a life-sustaining universe outside of ours. And it's, it's one in 10 to the 50th power is considered mathematically impossible. And that's like one to the 10 to the 120th power. It's not a number worth considering. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yeah. That's a theology question. Okay, here we go. I guess it could be apologetics. We'll go into it. Uh, do you believe in a six-day creation? Okay, I have really great friends in the field of apologetics who are six-day creationists. You got guys like Ken Ham who believe if the Bible says it, we should just take it at face value. Um, I have friends that are, um, they're called yom theorists. A yom theorist is the word in um, the Old Testament, the beginning. It says, in, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. The Spirit of God was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. There was evening, there was morning, the first yom. yom. Yeah, okay, yom. The first yom. But a yom can be a number of periods of time. It could be a day. It could be, in Scripture, it's seen as a thousand years. Uh, it can be seen as a whole epoch of time. So the word yom, we translate day because it talks about uh, light and darkness, but I don't think that necess- necessitates that it has to be a 24-hour period of time as we understand it. Another theory is that as the universe expanded, days got considerably shorter as the way that we revolve around the sun has changed with the expansion of space and t- whatever. But it's a lot. So there's yom theorists. There's uh, the people who understand Six-day creationist, this is the way it is. And God built age into the universe. It's not 14 billion years old, some people say. God built it. So what are the dinosaur bones doing there? God put them there. Uh, why, why does our universe, why does it take 14 billion light years to cross our universe? Why is it expanding? Why does it look that old? God made it to look that old, right? If God can make everything out of nothing, he can do whatever he wants. And so if he wants to make it look old, he can make it look old. People in my camp, we're called gap theorists. A gap theorist says, you don't have their Bibles out? Okay, I'll show you gap theory. I'm not, this isn't like my bell to ring. This isn't like my hill to die on. This is an open-handed issue. It's the most interesting one that I found right now. There's a guy right now that's postulating a book where he thinks that the whole creation narrative has nothing to do with creation itself. It has to do with God establishing his temple, but he's using day and creation. It's fantastic. It's like super fascinating. Um, and here's one thing that I really think we need to understand before we even get into that answer. Why was, why did Moses write the first five books of the law? Yeah. Uh, it was inspired by God, but what was his reason for doing it? When do, when do the people receive the books of the law? Do you guys remember in scripture? When do they get it? Okay. They were in a bad place. Where were they specifically? Wilderness, okay? The wilderness. God dictates the creation of the world to Moses in the wilderness. What had, this, what had the Israelites been doing previously? They, slavery, good. Slavery where? In Egypt. Uh, if you lived in Egypt, what were you accustomed to? Okay, what kind of, what kind of uh, religious system do they have? Okay, polytheistic. Everything is a God, right? This is why the plagues are so important. God sends 10 plagues on Egypt. The first plague is the plague of what? Blood in the Nile, right? Why does God send the plague of the blood in the Nile? Because they worshiped the God of the Nile. Then he 
he looked at the sun god Ra, and Ra was a god they worshiped. He was the god of light. He was the god of the sun. So what does God do? He makes it dark for as long as he feels like. Then they had Hepsut. They had this god of frogs. And so what does God do? He sends the frogs, and then he takes them away whenever he feels like it. He is attacking their gods and saying, y'all are messed up. There is only one god. I am the god of cattle. I am the god of fertility. I am the god of everything. I own it all, including their top god, which had the power to give life. What does God do in the 10th plague? Death of the firstborn. I'm the God of everything. So now he's got a whole bunch of people out in the desert, and they have been steeped in polytheism and Egyptian thought for decades and decades and decades, and God hands them the Torah, the first five books of the law, the Pentateuch, and what's he trying to do? He's teaching them what? This is what it is to live with me now. Was he writing a science textbook? Were those people, were they having arguments in their camp about, did, was it six period, six day period of time, or was it more of a multiverse model, or was it, were they having these conversations? No. In fact, if we started to read that in the text, we as modern people would say, this is an anachronism. They wouldn't have known any of this stuff. This Bible is false. So God's speaking their language, and his main attempt, his main thing he's doing in Genesis is not to establish for us thousands of years later who are asking these scientific questions, it's to teach people wandering in the desert that he is God. He's showing dominion and sovereignty. So it doesn't have, we don't have the details of how it happened. And God didn't intend for us to have them. And it would have been bonkers for him to explain to them how the space-time continuum came into being and how metaparticles and the Higgs boson constant was able to create space as we know it. And that dark energy is going to be this really confusing thing that no one can figure out for thousands of years. He doesn't say it. Of course he doesn't. He's talking to Bronze Age Israelites. They didn't get it. So we have to remember that's what it's establishing. We can't ask modern questions of an ancient text. Except insofar as if the text said, and then everyone turned into a gorilla. Right? Then we can test those things. But that's not what the text says. Yom, Epoch, six literal day, built in. Uh, age, uh, there's theistic evolutionists. There's people who believe that um, evolution might not be true. This idea of random, unguided mutations is too big of a leap in logic for most people. But the idea that that was an ordained process, that God was selectively choosing mutations to benefit species and doing it in a time that was, instead of being random, which would require hundreds of millions of millions of years uh, to even get simple genetic mutations ones that are profitable, that create new kinds, that if God was dictating exactly what to do, that he could create a tree of life like that for sure. I don't, I'm just unimpressed by the evidence for evolution, so that's not my boat. But I, my, my theology doesn't dictate that I can't be an evolutionist. The science just doesn't show me that it's really a convincing argument. So, gap theory. Has you got the Bible out? Fantastic. Turn to page one, Okay. Genesis 1, verse 1. Who's got it? Okay, right here. Um, read uh, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stop. In your Bible, what is, what is, what's right after that um, verse? Now the earth was formed. Okay, good. What does the word now denote? Time. Time. Um, typically, when you're writing in this context, and you're writing in an ancient language like this, this was telling you there's a separation in time between what you said first and what you're saying now. That's why you say the word now. Now the earth was formless and void. So in my particular branch of gap theory, which again, you don't have to believe this. We can be chill. It's all good. But I, what I think is really interesting is there's two different gaps of time in the book of Genesis that we don't have an account for how long they were, which I find extremely interesting. What if God is saying, in the beginning... In the very beginning, when the space-time continuum began, I spoke the universe into existence, the uranus, the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's just kind of a thrown out there fact. In the beginning, however long ago that was, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis is really going to tell us a story of what? Recreation, right? What's the next verse start with? Now the, where'd the earth come from? Now the earth was formless and void, tohu vavohu in the Hebrew. It was, it was, it was wild and waste. And this, this 
the darkness covered the waters and the Spirit of God was hovering and God said, let there be light. So a gap theorist can say, well, what was the difference? Was there, was there a 14 billion year span between when God originally created it and he dwelt with the Trinity and they exalted in their creation and they loved one another and they were in constant communion in this perfect dance for 14 billion years? And then they said, now, let us, reform this world that we've made so that it can inhabit these people so that we can make man in our image. Now it is time. It, it, it's the kairos. The, the, the appointed time has come. Let's now recreate the world into a way that's able to do it. Uh, there's, a, there's a great apologist who said he, his idea was what if God created the heavens and the earth and then let Satan reign over it with all freedom? Do whatever he wanted. And what's the state of the universe then? Wild and waste, tohu vavohu, darkness over the surface of the, of the deep. And so as Satan challenges God for supremacy, God says, here you go, try it. And we get this like archaic, broken, messed up, terrible world. And then God says, let there be light. Let, there be, let, the, let the land produce vegetation. Let there be man and woman. Let them have relationship. Let them bring forth offspring. Let the fields and the trees bring forth fruit. Let the animals come and let them roam with the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And he just starts calling out creation out of this wild and waste. The other place that gap theorists can point to, how long were Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before they fell? I don't know. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Could they have been chilling there for billions of years? Sure. Could, <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, so maybe, make sure I'm, I'm saying the same thing. The, the, the theology of the Trinity is that there's one entity, three persons. One being, three persons. Not three beings. No, that's called modalism. That's actually a heresy. So in 1400s, you just got burned at the stake, which is fantastic. <laughs> but it's a very common, it's really probably not your fault. The common way that we um, teach people the Trinity is heresy. That be, we use examples that doesn't fit in scripture, right? Like, um, God's like water. He can take a liquid, solid, or gaseous form. This is how I first learned the Trinity. Until I got to college, and my professor was like, yeah, that's a heresy. And you're like, oh no, that's it. <laughs> no one wants to be accused of that. But uh, basically, modalism says that there is one being, and when he needs to be the son, he becomes the son. And when he needs to be the spirit, he indwells in us as the spirit. But he originally was God the creator. The, the, the theology of the Trinity says that there is one being, the Godhead. Okay, this is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of them are unique in their personhood. The Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross. The Father didn't die on the cross, okay? Jesus died on the cross. Jesus doesn't live inside of you. The Father doesn't live inside of you. The Spirit lives inside of you. But in the Bible, we see them all receive worship. We see them all put on a level of divinity with God. We see them respond to prayer requests. We see them as personal, intentional movements. The Holy Spirit isn't some, like, good feeling that you have or a Jiminy Cricket conscience. Um, it is, it's a, it's the, the third person of the, the Trinity. So, I know it seems, <clears throat> it seems semantics, but it really, in Christian theology, it would be that there is one God, okay, Yahweh, and yet inside of that, there's a Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three equally worship as God, submissive to one another, all eternal, co-eternal since the beginning of the universe, since before the beginning of the universe. No, they can all three, they all three exist simultaneously always. No one ever gives up their divinity in order to appease the other or to make way for the other. They're always eternally coexistent. Good question. And again, the, the problem is the way that we teach it is often so flawed because it's so complicated. It's easier just to find analogies for it, but it doesn't actually suit the text. Yeah. Father's the, the, the Father is the creator. Um, now, Jesus is with God in the creation. We find that from John chapter 1. But we also understand that God is, um, seems to play the role of the willer. He seems to be the one who's he's like the sender. Jesus is the accomplisher and then Spirit's the sustainer. That's a good question. Okay, yes.
Okay, you're talking about, yeah, so the, the unforgivable sin being blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that's what you're talking about? Okay, hold on to that. Let me finish uh, my gap theory, and then we're going to go back to that. So gap theory can also say how long were they in the garden. When Adam and Eve, when, when Cain kills Abel, um, God marks Cain. And he marks Cain in order that Cain would not be what? Killed by who? The people. And where does Cain go? To a city full of people. So gap theory can state, well, there was these whole epochs of time, either between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, or when Adam and Eve were in the garden before they fell, where you could have whole epochs of dinosaurs and whole epochs of other creatures and whole epochs of that came and went and all those things. And that could absolutely be um, responsible to the text. It's not going to answer those questions because it doesn't mean to, but it still fits within the context of um, theology proper. Good? Cool. Uh, let me finish her question. Your question is a theology question. Come talk to me afterwards. Great question. Is there such thing as an unforgivable sin? Is it blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And what is that? We'll talk to you afterward. Yes, so, Mr. Yes. Taddy. Yes. Okay, good. So all the years of Adam are 930 years, and then he died. So this asks us a question. If Adam was part of some gap theory, then how could he possibly have done this? There's, how could he be nine, only 930 years old? Uh, first of all, a lot of people think that, um, that the, the idea of counting time would have been completely uh, irresponsible and unmanageable and ridiculous prior to the fall because the idea of there needing to be any kind of denotation wouldn't make any sense. So it could mean that since the fall or since his mortality, it could also mean that those are the generations that lived after Adam, that when it says Methuselah lived to be 969 years, it doesn't mean that the person himself lived that long, but his lineage before it petered out was that long, which means you would actually start counting at the beginning of Cain to move forward through all those things. There's a lot of theories that go along with that one, and I don't have a great answer for you, but that's a great question. When you said that, I went, you son of a gun. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I. It's all I ever use. Yeah, I. The most dangerous, like, uh, some of you guys that are adults in here, like, the most dangerous person that exits a college is not someone who's never taken philosophy right? It's someone who's taken exactly one philosophy class. <laughs> and the most dangerous people in, in this realm are not the people who study it a lot, because they're much more willing to have conversations. It's people who have had, who watched one YouTube video from Naked Steve's Basement, where he's like, eh, Christians are dumb. And you're like, you're not really making it. There's like a YouTube channel that's committed to every time I produce apologetics content, they get on there and they try to refute it. And as I just said, Call me on your show. I'll talk to you. They don't want to. Because you don't, they, don't want a live, they, don't want, <laughs> they don't want a live conversation. They want to straw man your discussions and straw man your arguments. If I was doing a debate and I had three hours, right, if it was a, typically a formal debate, I would present the cosmological argument, I would, I would present the argument from design, and I would present the moral argument, um, which are three different, I think, solid airtight arguments. The moral ones, actually, it's particularly important for our culture which is really all about morality and justice and stuff like that. Um, and I don't do that because I'm a pastor, because I didn't believe this stuff when I was younger. It's when I did study it, and then I studied the other thoughts. I just went, I literally, I, I finished reading The Moral Landscape written by Sam Harris, and in it he attacks the idea of the necessity of a divine judge for there to be morality. Christianity believes this. This is the moral argument for God. Um, if God does not exist, then objective morals don't exist. If there is no God, there's no such thing as right and wrong. Period. It's a very simple argument. If there is no God, right and wrong is delusional, it's, superflu it's superfluous, it's meaningless. Um, without God, if I asked you, who's a better person, Hitler or Mother Teresa, you would not be able to accurately and cogently give me an answer without borrowing from God. You just wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, it's William Lane Craig's example from On Guard. That guy stole it because William Lane Craig is the father of all modern apologetics. But in order to figure out the difference between the two of those people, you have to use statements like what he did was wrong, what she did was good, what they did was valuable. The, the issue with that is those are all value statements that you're actually borrowing from a Judeo-Christian mindset because on strict, uh, on strict atheism or on naturalistic uh, methodological naturalism, both of them were only doing what their DNA made them do, which means one wasn't worse than the other. If they were all just uh, space matter that has been formed through a process of evolution into the human goo that we understand ourselves to be, and their misfirings of their brain caused one to help people and one to murder 11 million people, we shouldn't actually put him on trial for anything because he didn't have a choice to do something different. It's what Richard Dawkins says in his book, The God Delusion. We are simply our DNA. There is at the bottom nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. We are objects of Mother Nature throwing her clay, and sometimes she is brutal, sometimes she is kind. We are nothing but DNA, and we dance to its music, and there's no such thing as right, wrong, at the bottom, good or evil. So on strict atheism, there's no such thing as right and wrong, good and evil. You have to borrow from a mindset or you have to come up with the idea that um, all morality is culturally created, which is fantastic, except that means if we all got together and voted that rape was okay, it would, find, it would just all of a sudden be okay overnight? Does anyone feel like that's like, if, if, we all, if, if Hitler won and we all spoke German and everyone, every lesser race in his opinion, every non-Aryan was eliminated from our culture and you survived, that wouldn't make him right. It just means that power won, not that right won, right? When you put the guys on trial in Nuremberg and you say, why did you do what you did? They didn't say, we didn't think that it was wrong. They said, we were just following orders. We were doing what the guy told us to do. So th th at its core, intelligent design is the only cogent way to understand almost anything meaningful in our universe, including morality. Uh, yeah, hand up. Okay, yeah, yeah. People love dinosaurs. Uh, so, again, it depends on what your theory of, of creationism is. So, I would probably be one who would believe that the dinosaurs came in and out of existence during that gap, that, during that period of time, where they were this really neat object of God's creation, and then they went back out. Some people believe that dinosaurs are actually present in the book of Job, where it talks about the, uh, the Leviathan and this massive animal who's... Um, uh, whose tail is like a cypress tree and it moves around and it lumbers through the forest. And I, I, I kind of shrug and go like, uh, I don't know. There's not a theory of Christian, of, of creationism that doesn't allow for dinosaurs. I just don't know which one's right, so I wouldn't be able to tell you. If I found out tomorrow that gap theory was right, I would go, oh, here it is. It's exactly what it is. Um, some people too, I think, wrongfully uh, understand that there was no such thing as animal death before the fall. We don't really get that that, that isn't really true. So people go, well, it can't be because there was no death for animals before the fall. Um, we don't find that to be true. They're still, they remain soulless. Uh, one, two, three. Yeah. Yes. Theologically, afterwards, come find me. Good question. Uh, and two. Um, my man. Yeah, yeah. As a gap theorist, it would, I would say yes, that, that humans and dinosaurs, but they, while dinosaurs were capable of dying, the animosity between the two wasn't there. So humans weren't walking around like defending themselves from T-Rexes, which the modern idea of T-Rexes and the ones that you've seen Jurassic Park are remarkably different. I just read this article today because I don't have any friends, and this is what I do for fun. <laughs> so anyway, they were probably winged creatures as children, and then they grew up, and they probably didn't move faster than three to five miles an hour. Right? So the whole Jeep scene. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I'd be a flood guy. Um, meteor or flood, extinction of the dinosaurs. I think I have a big dinosaur guy back here. Is he going to be a paleontologist when you get older? You're like, no, just got it. Okay. Yeah, good question. I kind of shrug and go like, I don't know. Good question. Uh, who was three? One, two, three. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great question. 
Gap theory would state that the difference in time, even non-gap theorists would say it doesn't need to be the next day that Adam and Eve fell. There could be a 20, 30, 40 period of, year period of time, and then you'd have more than one generation of people. Um, a gap theorist says there's a whole city built and all these things. Why? Because there's an indefinite period of time between the act of Cain killing, a, or the act of the fall, sorry, the inception of the garden and then the act of the fall. So um, Adam and Eve are told right when they get together to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. So sex isn't a result of the fall. It doesn't only happen after the fall. It's a part of God's perfect plan in Eden. And they were told to multiply, not just have sex. So it was for pleasure for sure, but it was also for procreation. So how many generations did they have before the fall? I don't know. Enough that there was a city that Cain ran to and the people were distant enough that they would have killed him had he not been marked. That's all we know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Another theology question, but yes. What we find is, yeah, ask me afterwards. Good question. Yes. Uh, she said, Cain and Abel had wives. Does that mean that they, you're actually, essentially asking, did they marry their sisters then? Yeah, I mean, but again, someone had to marry their sister. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Cain bit the bullet. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but it is, it is likely that every modern reprehensibility that we have towards that is a result of after the fall of the Tower of Babel where God limits the people's years. And he, he, he denotes in Scripture, no longer shall anyone marry any of their relatives. That before that, it was both a common practice and necessity for the spread of the human genome. And now, if you marry your sister, bad things happen. It's not good for genetics. Like, you got to spread the genes apart, man. You don't keep them together. But back then, we show no reason to believe that that was a problem. Uh, yeah. Uh, Pascal's wager, yep. Um, it's a theology question, and I can't wait to talk to you about it afterwards. Uh, someone in the back had their hands up for a long time. Not anymore? Okay, good. Hey, 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 hey. What? Oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry, front row. Okay, yeah. And then we're going to come back to the yeah, yeah, yeahers in the back. Yeah. We only have 15 minutes left? Jeez Louise. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, uh, good question. How does Neanderthal and Homo erectus and all these other people fit into it? The, the, the indefinite, inaccurate science of that whole thing is just so unappealing to me and disinteresting. I'm excited for them to figure out a way to do it accurately, but right now you, you sit an evolutionist alongside a creationist, alongside a flat earth guy, alongside like, uh, Neoplatonist, and they all look at the same thing and come to four different conclusions and write scholarly re jur reviewed journal articles about it. The science is just so poor and carbon dating. We just need a better system for it. We don't have it yet. And so until that happens, I just kind of shrug at all of it and go, I don't know. I don't know. Good question. Joel. Noah. <laughs> Noah. I called you Joel yesterday too. Uh, no, I'm going to the Yires in the back. And then here. Um, we, we, well, we first of all don't have any reason to believe that they didn't do that. Um, we don't see any edict where God all of a sudden subjects them to death. Uh, we also understand that the way that animals would have had to exist would have been through, uh, as carbon-based life form and for the process they went through, they were eating stuff. So the idea that there was no death before wouldn't work with the idea that you had to be eating stuff in order to maintain and sustain um, so I, I guess it's a little bit of an argument from silence. I guess more what I'm saying is people who come out and kind of uh, bombastically say, well, there was no death before the fall. I just, I, my response is always like, where? Why do we not see any death? We certainly don't see human death, for sure, but we also see a remarkable difference between those who were breathed in the breath of life, the, the, the nefesh chaya of God, and the animals who, like today, are soulless and um, material. Sorry if you love your dog. They're great. They're great. They just don't have a soul. Uh, yes. Okay, if there's only one truth, he's away the truth. Okay. 
Denominations are super different than religions. Okay, so denominations would say, um, like I grew up in a Lutheran denomination. Okay, so Lutheran denomination uh, believes in pedo-baptism, which means you can baptize babies. Okay, why? Because in the Old Testament, the covenant of circumcision took place with seven-day-old babies, and so you dedicated your child to God through the covenant of circumcision. So a modern-day Lutheran would say there's permission then in Scripture for you to baptize a baby as a father or a mother of a household or a guardian that says, I'm dedicating this child to God, but instead of circumcision, which was outlawed obviously through Peter in the New Testament and what Jesus did and fulfilled, not outlawed, it was fulfilled, and Therefore, now we use baptism during the period of silence between the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see John coming and baptizing people as this new way of marking someone who's a follower of the way. Lutherans go, I think it's okay to baptize them because we see this pattern in the Old Testament. Um, uh, Polycarp of Smyrna uh, was a disciple of John. He baptized infants. But then there's a whole group of people who believe because we, when is G, when, how old is Jesus when he gets baptized? 30, probably 30 years. It's the beginning of his ministry. And so they basically, right, what would Jesus do? And if he's getting baptized at an age of accountability, understanding what's going on, then that's what we're going to do. And if baptism is a response to the gospel work in your heart, and it's a response to what God's doing inside of you, then it should be a public declaration, and babies can't make public declarations. They're just babies. So you've got two denominations who both believe in the five solas of the, of the Christian faith, um, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed through scripture alone, and for God's glory alone. Lutherans, LCMS, Lutherans believe that. Um, Reformed Baptists believe that. Um, there's obviously different marks of progression, progressive Christianity in the middle of all those things, which some of them would fall outside the bounds of that. But for the vast majority of the Christian churches, they agree on all of the primary things. They disagree on the secondary things, right? The op- we call them open-handed issues, all Christians are reserved in closed-handed convictions. We differ on open-handed issues because the Bible doesn't make it explicitly clear for us. So we have permission then that I can stand up with my belief system at Hume Lake and there's a whole bunch of different churches and we keep the main thing the main thing even though we know that there's some things we're going to disagree on, we don't believe there's salvific things. We don't believe they're going to change where you end up when you die and that's really what makes us uniform. If you talk about different religious belief systems, that's a great question. Um, obviously, as a, as a Christian, the answer to all those questions, you study their, their ancient texts. You don't say, does it work? You don't say, does it make me feel good? Do I feel a burning in my bosom? Right? That's not how you understand truth. The Bible, um, Vodi Bakum has this great quote. It's, I believe in the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who report supernatural events and fulfillment of specific prophecies and whose authors claim that their origins are divine rather than the human. This is a reason that I believe the Bible. I don't believe the Bible because the Bible tells me that it's true. I believe it because you can test it and try it. There's manuscript, archaeological, prophetic, scientific evidence that backs the Bible. There's 1,500 prophecies. This is the most fascinating one. Maybe you don't care, but here we go. When you go to to Qumran, if you go to Qumran, in uh, the outskirts of Israel, you're going to come on this Bedouin community, this Essene Bedouin community, and in 1947, this kid was throwing a rock into a cave, and he hit something that was glass. He was trying to hit his goat, which isn't cool, right? Like, (laughs) I have goats. I would never throw rocks at them. Um, He's trying to throw a rock at his goat to get it to come out of this cave in Qumran, and he hits glass. He hits pottery. He doesn't know what it is. They go up there. They start excavating it, and in it, they find a compendium of scripture, But the scripture are scrolls from Isaiah and Psalm and all these other things that date back to uh, being transposed and written in in about the year 200 to 150 BC. So we found these in 1947, and they were buried in Qumran in 150 BC. Why is this important? It's important because prophecy only works if I know you didn't have access to it, right? If I go, "Mm, I think there's going to be chicken for dinner tonight. And there's like a big sign on the door that, <laughs> that's great. There's a big sign on the door at the cafeteria that says chicken will be served for dinner tonight. That's not that impressive, right? Here's what, I want you to turn with me so you can see this with your own eyes to answer your question. Turn to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm, yep. If you're new to the Bible, just try to open the middle of your Bible. It's the biggest book in the Bible. Um, it also contains the shortest, longest, and middlemost chapters of your Bible. 
And they're all in the same three chapters. So Psalm 117 is the shortest. Psalm 118 is the middlemost. And Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in your whole Bible. Kind of fun. You didn't care. No one asked. But <laughs> this is what happens when you are a nerd. Okay. Psalm 22. Okay, anyone here, you would say you're really unfamiliar, you, you, don't be embarrassed, this is, this was all of us at some point, you're really unfamiliar with the Bible, you're like, this is like fairly new for you, okay, what's your name? Mia, uh, what do you mean you're new to the Bible, how new are you to the Bible? Cool, welcome, okay, I want you to listen to this, and I want you to tell me what it sounds like, Okay. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. You are the enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one that Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. And you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by people. They see me and they mock me. They, throw, they hurl their insults at me, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Many bulls, verse 12, many, many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear at their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart's been turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me down in the dust of the earth. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and they pierce my feet. All my bones are on display. People gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Perfect. Listen to this. Tell me what this sounds like. A, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. On the cross. Okay. So fairly new to Christianity, you start to listen to the verbiage here, and you go, oh, this is a uh, crucifixion scene, right? Uh, bulls of Bastion, that was another word for Romans, these strong men that were in charge, Roman legions, people in charge of that. Um, every part of this, this is what's called a prophetic psalm. So it's telling of what's going to happen in the future. When we found the cave at Qumran, Psalm 22 was buried there in 150 BC, and no one had touched it until 1947. What had happened in the meantime? Jesus came to earth. The BC AD changeover happened where you needed to get a whole new watch. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, oh, is it time? Okay, brand new watch. Jesus came. He called himself God. He was crucified. But something else happened in that period of time. Crucifixion was invented in that period of time. It wasn't invented previous to that. It was invented in that gap of time. Jesus came. He was crucified. It was invented during that period of time. And all the events that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, those who are really familiar with the Bible, raise your hand. You're like, yeah, this is like my thing. Okay. <clears throat> my man. When I start with the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that bring to mind? On the cross, Jesus declares, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, in his original Aramaic language. That means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus on the cross screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, here's why that's important. When you and I want to turn to the book of Psalm chapter 22, what do we say? I say, turn to the book of Right, that's exactly how I would say it. Until the Masoretes came, they didn't have denotations in their Bible of where chapters began and ended. So guess how they told you to go look up a passage? They would take the first line. They would take the first line and they would say, here's what it is, it's called remez. It's a Hebrew idea of calling forth memory, okay? We do remez all the time. Let me help you out. What happens in Vegas, okay, Last time I went to Vegas, which was with my family and my parents, which is super cool. I had five kids and two parents, so it got wild. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but when we would walk around, we would do, we, it would be dumb stuff. Like you would fall off the curb and scrape your knee, and then people, we would just go, oh, don't tell what happens in Vegas, right? But we don't even actually say the end of the phrase, because everyone knows the end of it, right? 
You don't, no one has to say anymore, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's pointless. We know what you're talking about. Um, when I say the phrase, when in Rome, did anyone, did anyone here not know there's an end to that phrase? How many of you are learning in real time there's an end to the phrase, when in Rome? Yeah. When in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? That's like when you go to Korea and they're like eating crickets. You're like, when in Rome, eat the cricket, right? Like you go to Philadelphia and if you're gluten-free, you eat a cheesesteak. Why? When in Philly, right? When in Rome, do as the Romans do. We use remez. It calls attention the rest of the idea. So when Jesus is on the cross, what is he asking them to do? He says, I want you to think of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what the response of the religious leaders is after he does this? Do, is he calling on Elijah? What's he doing? What's, and then what do they insist that they do to him next? Kill him right away. Do you want to know why? On accident, everything that Psalm 22 predicts, 100, 600 years before the, resurrect, before the crucifixion, and we even have the prophecy buried in Qumran 150 years before crucifixion even exists, Jesus is going, hey, I know you didn't mean to do this. Turn to Psalm 22. And what are they doing in their minds? They're looking around, and the text tells us, Josephus tells, historians tell us that these things took place. They casted lots for Jesus' clothes. They played dice to see who got them. Jesus cries out because he's thirsty on the cross. He asked for, a, he asked for water when he's up there. People hurl insights at him. What do they say as he's passing by carrying his cross? If he... Is God, tell him to save himself. They hurl insults at me. And it says, I am encircled by villains. Jesus is in the center of three crosses. Anyone here from three crosses? Right. Who's on the left and the right? Two villains encircle me. Now with that in mind, listen to this. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. They see me and they mock me. They hurl their insults. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Go down to verse 12. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tear up their prey, open their wide, uh, mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. When he is pierced in the side, what happens? What flows out of him? Water. Blood and water flow separately. That's how they know that he was dead. And it says, my heart turns to wax and it has melted within me. The rupturing of the pericardial sac is the reason the blood and water would have flowed separately. My bones are out of joint. Does it say that his bones are broken? No. Were his bones broken on the cross? How common is it to find a crucifixion victim with no broken bones? Remarkably rare. But the prophecy from Isaiah was that none of his bones would be broken. He was whipped and flogged and beaten so severely they didn't have to break his legs. He was already dead. That's why they just pierced his side. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue is the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. You see what Jesus is doing? He's going... Oops, that is all about the Messiah, and I'm doing every last one of those things. And he calls it to mind. So the reason that I trust the Bible is not because the Bible tells me it's trustworthy, right? Because so do pedophiles, right? Get in the truck. Why should I get in the truck? Just trust me. You, that's, that's called, it's a tautology. Of course you're going to say that. The Bible can't tell me that it's trustworthy, and the only reason I trust it is because it tells me that it's trustworthy. It's a tautology. I need to trust it for extra biblical evidence. I need to trust it because when I go to Qumran and I see that there's this 2,000-year gap between this time frame, more than 2,000 years, and the predictions, there's 1,500 Christological prophecies and, and biblical prophecies that are in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament. There's one study done that if you wanted to fulfill even eight of those, right, the Old Testament says he'd be born in Bethlehem. He would be born um, during the time of Tiberius Caesar. He would be born uh, during a time of peace between these warring nations. If you just randomly assigned really conservative numbers, like one in ten, like if, if you said that the odds of a man being born in Bethlehem in the history of the world was one in ten, right? That's remarkably generous. What do you think the real odds are? What percentage of all of mankind was born in Bethlehem? 0.000001%. This guy just assigned numbers to it like 1 in 10, 1 in 20. And for only eight of the prophecies of Jesus to come true, to be fulfilled, having been buried in Qumran, 
and fulfilled in Jesus, it was like if you took quarters and you covered the state of Texas two feet deep with quarters. And then you walked the, the face of the state of Texas on top of those two feet of quarters. First of all, it would take you about 1.5 million years to do this. But let's say that you did. And in 1.5 million years, at any point, you can stop. You're blindfolded. And someone has marked the bottom of one of those coins with an X. You traverse the whole state. And whenever you feel like it, in one and a half million years, you're just going to stop and you're going to go right here. And then you're blindfolded and you dig down. Now you still have two feet worth of quarters to figure out and thousands below your feet that you got to try to find. And you grab one and you go, this is it. It's not, right? Like it's not it. It's just not. Like that's more than mathematically impossible. And yet for only eight of 1,500 to come true, that is the probability of just eight of them to happen. So I don't believe in the Bible because my religion forces me to. I studied other ones. I studied the Bhagavad Gita. I studied the, the truth of the Quran. I it's just, they're just empty. I believe in the Bible because the manuscript evidence for it, the internal and external bibliographical evidence, if you didn't have the Bible and you just took first century sources that were talking about what Jesus did, you could recreate the entire New Testament except outside of like 12 verses in Philemon. You could create the entire thing. You don't even need the Bible. Other people are talking about it so much and what Jesus did that that's what it is. Um, prophetic evidence, astounding. And, and then scientific evidence, things that were known about the universe long before popular science knew about them. Those are the things that, that, that intrigue me. That's why I believe that the Bible is true. It's not because it worked for me or because it's my favorite um, it's because of those things. It's five o'clock. I want to be good with you guys this time, so I'm going to let y'all out of here. I'm going to chill here until I have to go over to dinner at six when all my kids are going to show up and they're going to wreck the world. So, um, but for the next 30-ish minutes, if you want to come and ask individual questions, but I want to let everyone else go, and I will see you guys later.